Exodus chapter 16 is where we are going to begin. We're going to look at verse 1 of chapter 16 all the way through verse 7 of chapter 17. Now what I want to do to get us going into our passage is just read the first 30 verses of chapter 16, this great story of God's miraculous provision of manna for His needy and grumbling people there in the wilderness. And then I'll pray for our time and and we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us once again through His Word. They set out from Elim, and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, That evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the morning meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full... Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat, and you shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, 
And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. And they laid it aside till the morning, and Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath. To the Lord, today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that your word is our bread, it is our water, that by your word we alone find life. So we pray that you would feed us with your heavenly food this morning, that we might be nourished, that we might be equipped, that we might be strengthened, that we might be filled by your spirit. Give us earnestness and repentance as we listen as dying people. Give me clarity, give me courage as I preach as a dying man. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, kids, I, I wonder if you've ever come across what's commonly called as fool's gold. I certainly came across it on a trip in my younger years in Colorado and was stumped to discover it wasn't real gold by the time I got back to camp. Because throughout the ages, of course, there have been no small number of metals that have looked like gold and less than honest merchants have passed off as gold to deceive less than discerning buyers of a profit that they could make only if it really was gold. And so throughout the centuries, cultures have always come up with tests of how you can discern whether or not it truly is gold, what someone is selling you. And more often than not, throughout the various cultures and centuries, people have used something called an acid test to figure out whether or not it truly is gold, because gold is what's called a noble metal, uh, meaning it it's basically doesn't respond to the corrosive effects of acid. So what you would do in that kind of ancient system of testing out gold is you would find some sort of black stone or maybe like a black sheet of slate and you would take the gold or the supposed gold and you would kind of scratch a mark on that black stone and then you would take acid and kind of try to wash away that mark and if that mark of the gold washed away, well then you figured out it was just fake gold. But if that mark didn't wash away under the acid's power, then you realize what you were holding there in front of you was none other than genuine, tried and verified, true gold. And I tell you that today because what we come to in our passage are two acid tests of Israel's faith. Because you know as well as I do, as surely as there is fake gold, there's fake faith. As there is insincere gold, there's insincere trust. And what are we going to do? How is God going to respond to such supposed faith, such supposed trust? Well, what we find out in our text today, and the Bible bears out, doesn't it, over and over, is that God will test His people. God will test the professing community to see if their faith is genuine, to see if their trust is real. And so what you need to recognize is that in the midst of our two chapters today, we have a very profound spiritual lesson that's presented to us. 
Because you might know in your own experience how the Lord doesn't simply just test His people. The Lord tests and tests and tests and tests some more His people that He might prove their faith, that He might grow their faith. And I suppose you might even look out across your own life right now and some of your perspective might change on certain events and circumstances, certain adversities and afflictions, perhaps sufferings and sorrows, if you knew that it was actually, in part, God testing you in the midst of your trouble and trial. And kids, I would imagine that if you're anything like me, you don't particularly enjoy taking tests in school. Certainly when I was growing up, it was only a precious few of any students in any class I was a part of that enjoyed taking a test. But what you need to learn the lesson of students today is that God does indeed often attest His people, that they might rely on Him more, they might see His mercy and provision, and certainly realize the true condition of their own heart. So what we're going to look at today in the course of our passage are God's two acid tests, tests for when the pantry is empty, because we're going to first of all see Him testing the hungry. And then we're going to see him testing the thirsty. So testing the hungry begins, notice, with the time of this test in verse 1 of chapter 16. If you look at the end of verse 1, we're told that this test came on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Now, it's a way in which that the author is telling us. We find ourselves by this point in the story of Exodus. We are 45 days on from the Exodus from Egypt. We left off last week, if you were with us, at the end of chapter 15, where Israel was grumbling three days after experiencing God's power in delivering them across the Red Sea. You fast forward the story six weeks, 42 days later, there yet again, aren't they, grumbling before the Lord. Notice verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And you might have noticed as I was reading the text that there was a number of times that this chapter underscores that it's the entirety of the people that are grumbling and complaining. This isn't just some sort of isolated irritation. This is widespread whining in the community of Israel. Because if you glance back up to verse 24 of chapter 15, I think the right way to understand that whining and that grumbling before the Lord there at Mara was some sort of a more isolated incident. Because chapter 16 is trying to underscore for us at this point, it's the entire church of Israel that's now grumbling against the Lord. And why are they grumbling? Notice verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. There's a couple of things you want to notice just there, even in verse 3. One of which is how hardship tends to make us reinterpret the past and make past circumstances much better than they actually were. Sentimentality can be a genuine danger to Christianity, right? They look back on bondage and slavery, where in Exodus chapter 2, they cried out to the Lord, Deliver us from these chains! They're now basically, because they're hungry... Well, you know, at least the grocery stores were better in Egypt. Might as well take those chains back, because at least we had lots of meat and lots of bread. Suddenly seems a lot better, slavery and bondage in Egypt. 
And significantly, what Psalm 78, which we sang a few moments ago, tells us about even this verse is that the nation of Israel here, yes, they do need food, of course, to survive. But the language of Psalm 78's commentary is that they, they called out and they complained for the food that they craved. Because remember, what's before them? Flocks and herds. They have plenty of animals that they could eat. They have the Lord traveling before them in a cloud and a pillar of fire. The Lord is with them. He could provide for them. Didn't He just miraculously show that powerful provision at the Red Sea? And yet, they've interpreted their greed as need. We're craving this kind of food, and so now we're complaining to the Lord. Oftentimes in life, isn't it true that even in your own personal situation, perhaps even in a corporate situation, we can interpret our greediness as neediness, something we want becomes something we have to have and desperately need. And so, notice how the Lord responds to this grumbling and complaining in His tender mercy. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The last time the Lord rained down anything in Exodus was raining down judgment of hail from heaven in chapter 9. But here he's going to rain down provision on his people. And you'll see that the intent there is that he's going to test them with his provision. That along the way, he's not just providing for their hunger. He's actually providing them with a test to tease out the reality of their trust in him. So the test is going to be quite simple. Notice verse 6, Moses said to all the people, of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. How, how are you going to know that? Skip all the way down to verse 12. It simply said, In the evening at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And if you just scan your eyes, and you probably noticed this as I was reading the passage earlier, through the verses between 6 and 12, notice the number of times that Moses speaks in the hearing of the people, uh, that you're grumbling. It's not against me and Aaron. Your, your grumbling is against God. He's heard all of it. The children, I suppose, that you can think back on times this week when maybe you were complaining and grumbling about something. Parents, we know we don't have to teach our children to complain and grumble about something. Sin causes us to complain and grumble about many things. And sadly, I know far too many Christians that think their complaining and grumbling is altogether righteous when the Lord hears it. And you'll notice in the course of this passage, he's not pleased by it. So he means to test out the trust of his people with the quail that's going to come in the evening. So much quail is going to show up in the evening that Psalm 78 can say it was like sand on the seashore. There's quail everywhere. Not just the quail in the evening, there's going to be bread bread in the morning. And you'll see that that arrives in verse 13. In the morning, dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing on the ground, fine as frost on the ground. Uh, just earlier this week, our children were having the, the bare remnants, the last remnants of their Halloween haul of candy. 
And all that was left, you know, were short little like miniature candy bars that you often get these days. And I recently had been talking to my kids as they were eating this candy, and they were asking me, what's your favorite candy bar, Daddy? And I was telling them about candy bars of old because, of course, certain candies that were normal when I was a kid aren't around anymore. And one of those that was mentioned was the whatchamacallit bar. You know, it's like peanut wafers, peanut flavor wafers, you know, covered in caramel and chocolate. And the only reason I tell you that is because in the words of one uh, well-known Hebrew scholar, what we have here on the morning before Israel is whatchamacallit bread. And that's genuinely exactly what was before them because notice what we're told in verse 15 when the people of Israel saw it. They said to one another, what is it? What's before them is something they're not familiar with. That's essentially what manna means. What is it bread? And this what is it bread was actually quite not just pleasing to the eye, pleasing to the taste. Skip down to verse 31. Now the house of Israel called this bread manna. So what is it bread? Whatchamacallit bread? And it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Altogether pleasant. Quite appetizing. Certainly would curtail the appetite a little bit. But remember we're at the point in the story where the test actually hasn't come fully. The test now, with this bread, begins, notice verse 16, this is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat, and you shall take each an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in the tent. So students, you surely probably don't know what an omer looks like in terms of its size. It's simply about the size, a little more, but certainly the easiest way we can talk about it is as a two-liter so if you think of going to a grocery store, being perhaps at a Christmas party or over at a friend's house, and there's a two-liter bottle of some sort of drink. That's about the amount that God is instructing the nation of Israel to gather. And they're supposed to gather it that day and eat it all that night and not leave any of it left over. For look at what the Lord says in verse 19. Let no one leave any of it over till the morning, but... They've already failed a test, haven't they? You see verse 20. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So why must they consume all of it that day? Well, Because this is the test. Do you trust me, God is saying, do you trust me to gather just enough for today, knowing I'm going to give you more tomorrow? But you don't get to hoard this for yourself. And if you do, I'm going to send a curse of worms and stink upon it. Do you trust me enough to know that I'll provide for you daily bread tomorrow too? And some of you might be in a situation and circumstance right now in your own life where the Lord is just providing for you day after day. It's not as though He's giving you this storehouse of weeks and months of spiritual provision on which you can rely. It's just you're going from day to day. Today, can you trust that He gives you enough for this day and will give you enough for tomorrow? I suppose some of you might be in a situation and circumstance where you wonder, I don't even know if He's going to give me enough for today. Is that not why even Jesus told us to pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread? As certain as it was that they received it, so certain is it that you will receive it just this day. But the test isn't done, is it? For notice on the sixth day, verse 22, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation of Israel came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a Sabbath day of rest 
a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So, so picture then what's going on in the nation of Israel at this moment in the wilderness. Sunday through Thursday, they show up in the morning and they're gathering their, their two liters of manna. And on Friday, they gather double the amount of manna because the Lord has said there's not going to be any manna that's going to be provided on Saturday, which is the Sabbath. And so you gather enough on Friday because there's not going to be any on Saturday. Gather enough for Friday and Saturday together. And yet again, already, the nation of Israel fails that test. Look at verse 27. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. So the Lord bursts forth to Moses, verse 28, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Do You see, it's the same kind of test of trust. Do you trust me enough to not work one day in seven, knowing that I'm going to provide everything you need on that seventh day the previous six days? And so it's also significant to note here, perhaps you've never seen this before, The Sabbath command, which is going to come, isn't it, in just a few chapters' time, at the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets, the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? It was already part and parcel of the nation of Israel's experience and history at this point in Exodus chapter 16. And the reason why is because that Sabbath command stretches back all the way to Genesis chapter 2, when God rested on the seventh day. And I know some of you might be in here today and And you understand the tests that even the Lord's Day brings to you. Do you trust the Lord enough to devote one day to His worship and His rest, knowing that the other six days will provide everything you need on His day? That you can rest in the Lord and He is with you and He will provide everything you need on that day if you just would give it over in rest to Him. So important is this man that you'll notice in the rest of chapter 16 that the Lord gives these very specific instructions the nation of Israel is to take some of this heavenly bread and they're to set it near the Ark of the Covenant for after the 40 years of wandering, the man is not going to be necessary anymore. But it's supposed to be this signal, this remembrance for generations to come of God's kind provision, miraculous provision there of manna that in the midst of their doubting, in the midst of their wondering, in the midst of their testing, they'd be able to know that they can still trust in the Lord because you remember when He provided For 40 years, manna for our forefathers. You remember when God provided manna for our forefathers after they grumbled because they didn't trust the Lord as He was testing the hungry. He doesn't just test the hungry. He goes about now in chapter 17 testing the thirsty. At the last church where I served as pastor, we had a book stall that we stuffed with good books of truth and various parts of Christian living that we thought were edifying. And so I felt in in certain ways there were times in the week and even after a service where I kind of moved from being a pastor to a book peddler because I was always trying to, you know, get people to buy books that I thought would be helpful to them and use these resources as they would grow in Christ. And uh, one of the books that I put right at the beginning of opening this bookstall was Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, which is subtitled Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And for four years, I tried to pass that book off to people. I couldn't get anyone to buy it, you know, for four years. 
And I chose not to read far too much into that experience as some sort of a spiritual parable. Uh, but I certainly wondered oftentimes when I couldn't get anyone to buy the book if it's a, it's a true thing in the Christian life that Christians don't like to confront the cherished, tolerated sins that often mark their experience. And we can be certain that Israel didn't like to confront the cherished, tolerated sin that belonged to their experience, which is grumbling and complaining. Because you'll see, as verse 1 tells us in, verse seven, in chapter 17, that they're moving on in stages from the wilderness of sin. They come to camp at Rephidim, and notice what happens in verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. And the word here for quarreling, it's a really forceful one. You might want to understand them as they're grumbling and quarreling with Moses is, is very much they're almost putting him up on a court martial. They're wanting to bring charges against him for this dereliction of duty. So intense is their anger and quarreling with Moses over this moment that he recognizes they're soon ready, going, going to be ready to meet out on him capital punishment. Because look at what he says to the Lord in verse 4. He cried out to Yahweh and he asked, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Such is their thirst. So the test here of the testing of the thirsty reveals a number of things about the nation of Israel's experience that I think we can apply to our experience today. Uh, a couple of which relates to the common ingredients that go into a, a complaint. Uh, why do God's people tend to often complain to Him in times of testing? Uh, number one, you can say, is that they're requiring God's provision. Look at what they say in verse 2. Not only are they quarreling with Moses... They demand, give us water to drink. There's not much humility in that statement, is there? There's no praying for water. There's no pleading for water. There's no waiting for the Lord who moves before them in cloud and fire, waiting on Him to provide water. There's, give us water. It's a strong demand, isn't it? Not just that. You'll notice as the text continues that they forget God's protection. You see verse 3? They say to Moses, well, we're told, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Remember, going before them day and evening is God himself in the cloud and the fire, which protected them against Pharaoh's armies, the greatest chariots in the known world at the time. He protected them from death at Pharaoh's hands. And now they wonder, I guess he's not going to protect us from death at thirst's hands. But probably the most essential thing that I want you to see in the nature of their complaint is it's not just that they're demanding God's provision. It's not just that they're doubting and denying God's protection. It's also they're doubting God's presence among them. Because you'll notice the end of verse 7, we're told that they tested the Lord here by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And you might be wondering the same question in your own life. Lord, I need something. And you've expressed that need for days, for weeks, for months, perhaps even years. And he still hasn't met that need. And so Satan is then on your shoulder saying, is the Lord really with you anymore? Doesn't all of the absence of answers mean he's not with you? Well, he is with them, isn't he? 
Because the Lord condescends in his mercy and compassion, you'll see in verse 5 and 6, he simply says to Moses and Aaron, you know, take the staff, take the elders of the people, march off to this rocket horror, but I'm going to stand right there. And that exactly happens. And then when you get to this rock, you're going to strike this rock. And Moses, you'll see, of course, strikes the rock. And the people of Israel will drink. Uh, kids, that's a lot of water that comes out of a rock, isn't it? Water that's feeding well north of a million people. Suddenly gushing forth from this rock. They've failed the test, haven't they? Time and time again. Tests that are meant to show that God indeed can be trusted to provide for His people in the midst of their need. Whatever it may be. I've spent the last 10 days or so preparing for this. A course I've got to teach at the spring semester, it's history and theology of Puritans. And so I've just kind of started organizing the content and going through all of these Puritan books that I have in the office, trying to figure out which points of interest are necessary to communicate to the students. And I keep coming back to the brilliance of a Puritan named Thomas Watson, who I wouldn't say is my favorite Puritan, but and certainly I think he can express God's truth in a way with unusual vividness that really kind of strikes the heart and, and pierces the soul with arrows of truth. And my favorite book that Thomas Watson ever wrote is titled, A Godly Man's Picture Drawn with a Scripture Pencil. And it's, you know, your kind of stereotypical clumsy Puritan title. Uh, but kids, you, you want to think about all that Watson is doing in this book, is saying if we took God's Bible and used it as like a paintbrush or a pencil to, to paint a picture of godliness, what kind of picture with that pencil paint. And he gets to a chapter on patience. You know, patience is utterly necessary to godliness. And he gets into his exposition of patience, and he starts talking about patience in the midst of affliction. And he says, as surely as the storm tests the pilot, so surely does affliction test the Christian. Uh, Do you want to know if a pilot really has the skill to steer? Watch him in a storm. If you want to know if a Christian truly has trust and faith in the Lord, watch him or her in a test of affliction and adversity. You surely don't need me, do you, to recognize how even 2020 in a unique way in recent history has provided no small number of tests for God's people. Tests of contentment. Tests of unity. Tests of kindness towards others with whom we disagree. But certainly tests that may abound in your life and we don't even know them that well. Tests of whether or not you're going to rely on the Lord. Tests of whether or not you're going to depend on the Spirit. Tests of whether or not you're going to look to Jesus Christ in the midst of God's trial. And so as we begin to close, what I want to do is help you pass your test, prepare yourself for future tests by seeing how our text points to four different ways that you can look to Christ in the experience of Israel the experience of God's provision. So number one, I want you to see that God provides supernaturally. God provides supernaturally. You know, quail cover the wilderness as sand on the seashore. This heavenly angelic bread just shows up every single day. Water pours forth, gushes forth from a rock, quenching the thirst of millions. It's all supernatural, isn't it? And did not God supernaturally provide for us His Son? To be born as a baby, supernaturally, of a virgin mother. He provides supernaturally. Number two, God provides sufficiently. If you glance back to chapter 16, verse 18, 
That underscores for us, doesn't it, that every need was met. The text tells us that whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. God has promised you the same thing in Jesus Christ, that He will meet every one of your needs. He can supply out of His eternal riches of glory and grace everything that you need. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He provides supernaturally. He provides sufficiently. He also provides steadfastly. I mean, imagine it, kids. For 40 years, if you were living there in the wilderness, Sunday through Friday, what greets you and says good morning is the what-is-it bread that's on the ground. Day after day after day. Week after week after week. Over and over and over and over. God is steadfastly providing for His people. And does He not do the same thing for you even in Jesus Christ who is what? The same. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. He provides supernaturally, sufficiently, steadfastly. Finally, He provides savingly. Savingly. It's true, isn't it? If they don't have food, if they don't have water, they're going to die eventually. So you can understand the the nature of the struggle. But the text is going to tell us later on in the New Testament's reflection on our passage that this is very much in every way pointing to the good news, the great news of salvation that's given to us in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, after He fed miraculously thousands of people in John chapter 6, you know what He said? I am the bread of life. I am the bread that's come down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread shall not die. Whoever eats of this bread will have eternal life. I wonder if you're hungry for Jesus Christ today in the midst of your test. But it's not just the manna. It's not just the angelic food from heaven that falls on the earth that points forward to Jesus Christ. It's also that rock there at Horeb that Moses struck. Some of you might know the text from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says that rock was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And kids, you might think, really? That rock was Jesus Christ himself? But all Paul is saying is this, any provision that God's people receive comes through Jesus Christ himself. But not just that. Isn't it true that for people who have failed test after test after test, Jesus, after passing test after test after test, goes to the cross at Calvary and he was struck. The word strike is a term of judgment. And he was struck. In God's judgment and what poured forth from his side. But blood and water. That God provides everything you need in Jesus Christ. So in the midst of your testing. You can trust Jesus Christ because he's passed every test for you. That in the midst of your testing you can look to Jesus Christ. Because he is God's supernatural provision. He's God's sufficient and steadfast provision. And most gloriously he's God's saving provision. For sinners like you and me. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would increase our trust in the midst of our trial. Uh, We know you're testing many in our congregation. Father, help them to look to Jesus Christ, to provide for their every need this day, that you would indeed pour out upon them daily bread, that they might find your nourishment, that they might find satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. And we pray it in his name. Amen. As we stand together to respond to God's word, let's do so with the most appropriate hymn.
as the manna was new.